Welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stories from the people who are making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. I'm your host, Ben Getz. So this week, we're going to re-air an interview with Chef Steven Satterfield of Miller Union. And the restaurant has had quite the year, and the steam is really just starting to build. You know, they were recently named the number one restaurant in the city from Atlanta Magazine's Top 75. Their 10-year anniversary is coming up this November, and their outstanding wine program was nominated for another James Beard Award. And there's still so much to be seen from Steven, Neil, and the entire team. So here's a conversation that Steven and I had last summer. And oh, in case you hadn't caught this interview last season, I sound a little nervous and maybe overly excited. I'm a huge fan of his cooking and always will be. Anyways, on with the show. But uh, I got to say, I, I'm like, I'm freaking out a little bit because I've, I've dined at Miller Union so many times. And um, I think I, I want to like tell you a little bit of a story if that's okay. Sure. So I, I was at Food and Wine years ago and I'm sitting in one of the you know big rooms and you're on stage and Linton Hopkins is interviewing you and he's going through you know your approach to you know seasonal produce and vegetables and and just you know where you like really cut your teeth here in Atlanta and he said like this is as best as I can get the verbatim quote but he said Stephen Satterfield's seasonal vegetable plate is one of the greatest dishes that this country has to offer and I was booking my reservation to Miller Union like, <laughs> while he was saying this. So I, uh, this is such a huge honor to oh, have great. you on the show. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, yeah, Chef. Yeah. I really appreciate it. But um, you really don't need any introduction, but I'm really excited that uh, Chef Steven Satterfield is on the other end of the mic. So welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, man. It's, uh, it, I'm really, really excited. So, But how are you today? I'm pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I know. It, well, we're, it's not hot, which is really nice. It's wonderful. It's yeah. not too hot. Yeah. I love it when I get a chance to do interviews and I'm just trying to like, you know, keep things going and it's like sweltering heat, but it's like, we got a breeze and like a crazy thunderstorm heading our way. So, but this right. is good. Like, you know, it's, it's nice and cozy weather, but all the feels. Yeah. All the feels <laughs> all the, uh, yeah. This is like the antithesis of summertime <laughs> weather, but it's great. It's a great day for a podcast, but um, but chef, I want to get to know you a little bit more. I want to ask you some, some fun questions just about like where you come from and your background. And my first question that I ask every single one of my guests is I want to know who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? Well, my, my mom did all the cooking mostly unless it was grilling. Then it was my dad. Nice. Like very typical American, uh, um, roles. And I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I'm the youngest of four siblings. Um, both my parents were educators, so it was, dinner was always kind of a quick thrown together thing. I mean, my mom worked all day and so did my dad. You know, they just didn't really put a lot of time and effort into it, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get it now as an adult. <laughs> right. <laughs> Man, and the youngest of four, you had to get the biggest fork then. You were, you were trying I had, to... I had to scrap for, for scraps. <laughs> <laughs> so brothers, uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, how, how what's the years between you guys? Uh, well, my sister's the oldest; she's eleven years older than me. Oh man, and then um, older brother, eight years older, and then another brother that's two years older. Man, so you really had to like get some good like fighting muscles to the table. Of, yeah, like, I mean, well, look at me; I'm kind of scrawny. I didn't really get to it. You had to like enough. weave your way in there, though. It's <laughs> like no, the last pork, the last pork chops for me, guys. You know, like I got to get in there. Uh, what kind of eater were you as a kid? Very picky. Were you? Extremely picky. We kindred spirit, man. I was a nightmare. I was such a picky kid. Yep. Yeah. What what was like your biggest fear? 
I didn't have any fears. I just had a lot of dislikes. <laughs> like I, I thought a lot of things tasted gross. I, I actually feel like I had an extremely sensitive palate when I was a kid that now I understand a little bit better. Um, but like certain things were repulsive to me, like cucumbers, which I love now, olives, which I love now, um, mayonnaise, I hated, love it now. Oh, so, man. I mean, it's just weird. Like there, there was just certain things I just literally couldn't stomach them. Yeah. Are, are you like a homemade mayonnaise guy now? Or are you oh, Dukes? absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But see, now that I homemade mayonnaise changed my life, changed my perspective on mayonnaise. Now I can eat any kind of mayonnaise, but I prefer homemade, of course. Yeah. I think I, I have the I don't know, maybe it's just the approach. But if I make mayonnaise in you know, our blender at home, I'll actually drag my finger through it and try it because I need to make sure that it's got the right you know, balance. But I still have a hard time if it's any even Dukes as much as I love it. Like I can't just eat it by itself. I've got like this weird aversion, you know, like I've got to like set myself up for it, but well, sure. It's a condiment. It's not, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to eat it by the spoonful. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. It's just so hard to like get, you know, that, that mental side, like there's just a huge hurdle to get over. But, um, but man, that's, that's, that's just so funny. Like I love, I love talking to people like where their background, they were such a picky kid growing up and then totally. And I eat everything now. I mean, literally there's nothing I won't eat. Um, or try at least. I mean, there's certain things obviously that I don't like as much, but I'm I'm a very well-rounded eater now. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm proud about that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that there was like a big moment, um, like when I was a kid, of sushi was. I mean, like just the flavor of nori. Like it finally just clicked. You know, it's like oh my yeah. gosh, like there's just a whole world out there that totally. I've just been missing. Um, man, something else about your background that I just, I really love, but music is a huge part of your background. And I know that you were, I mean, did you grow up playing music and then? I did actually. Um, I pretty young um, learned how to play a couple of different woodwind instruments with more of a focus on clarinet and then later bass clarinet. And um, I had a private tutor. I was in every form of band you could think of through school, including, um, marching band and symphonic band. And I ended up getting into the Savannah Youth Symphony Orchestra <clears throat> and also competing in the classical music world um, for like the state uh, competitions and things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I guess fast forwarding a little bit. So you, you're here in Savannah or here in Savannah. We're not in Savannah, everybody. Like, so here in Atlanta, you're actually, you, you actually had some time where you're actually in a, a fairly successful, like popular band. And this was in the nineties. Correct. Yeah. So, um, I took some time off from playing music and it was when I was in college. And during that time I was listening to a lot of music and kind of discovering a lot of things as a lot of college students do. <laughs> um, and I just, I really, um, you know, found myself, listening to a lot of alternative stuff. And um, I was also big into like the new wave stuff in the eighties. And so I, after I graduated, I picked up a guitar for the first time and taught myself how to play and found a friend who uh, was also playing guitar a little bit. And then we found a drummer and found a bass player and we were just doing it for fun. And we recorded some songs and sent them to a few labels um, on cassette tape. Nice. And because that's what we had at the time to record with. Um, and we ended up getting interest from a label in the UK called Two Pure. Um, they were the same label that launched uh, Stereo Lab and PJ Harvey and several other bands, um, some of them much more obscure. 
but we were we ended up signing with them we were the first american band to sign to two pure which um so it was funny because we were an american american musicians that were licensed back to the states through a uk label wow um, so we we sort of made international headlines on a indie scale and we were literally plucked out of obscurity and immediately on college radio so it was a really exciting time and um, we ended up cutting four records in five years wow <clears throat> and got to tour all over the US and played in New York City a lot and a lot of regional shows in the southeast so it was great it was a great time in, in our lives where we were being creative and and being semi-successful at it were we successful like paying our bills with it no um <laughs> that's why i started working in restaurants gotcha yeah and you know when i um my wife and i moved to atlanta in the summer of 2013 and you know i uh just just through you know the industry like got to know some people and you know they just giving us recommendations of where to eat and like one restaurant you guys really need to go to is Steven Satterfield's restaurant Miller Union and they were also just giving me a little bit of your background They're like something that you're really going to love is th and they just like laid out your whole history of like you know being in a band and touring and like cutting records and like there was a huge part of me that really wanted to work in the industry like before iTunes and I was like I'm going to work in A&R and I'm going to be like the coolest guy and yeah. so it was uh it was just really cool to like know that about you and also seeing you know the your your menu and actually the restaurant and like so having that knowledge of of your of just of your background is just really really cool so i just think that's an awesome part of your story yeah it's definitely an interesting chapter in my life and um prior to that i was at georgia tech and studied architecture um which is another chapter because <laughs> <laughs> um, i spent five years doing that and really enjoyed school um had a great education i studied abroad in paris for a year and when i got into the field it was when everything was changing from working with your hands to working on a computer and it was a, for me it was a turnoff because it wasn't what i had signed up for i knew i wanted to make things and I didn't want to make them in, in what was at the time a very clunky version of CAD. Um, so I, I did a couple of internships and I was just like, this isn't really what I signed up for and literally just walked away from architecture and never touched it again. Wow. Where did you want to go with architecture? Um, I thought I wanted to be an architect. Yeah. Know, but the more I got into um, just, you know, having to work through your way, work your way through a firm and I just, I knew I also wanted to be in charge of something and I knew it would take a very long time to get there. And I just kind of, I just decided I wasn't feeling it, you know? Yeah. Much to my parents' dismay. <laughs> they spent some money on, right. on college. So. Like, oh man, you're set up to be an architect and now <laughs> what's next? Like, oh, not architecture. Right. Wow. That's yeah. the perfect like answer from your child, you know? But I think <laughs> what, what I did was I listened to my gut and... I missed music, and so that's where I went with that for a while. And, I, and you know, it was exciting, it was fun, it was semi-successful, but at the end of the day, you know, I couldn't really count on it as a long-lasting career. Um, and I was already working at rest, in restaurants during that whole time I was playing music, and I had started to get more serious about food. And then I came to a point where I, I decided I need to make a, I need to make a decision one or the other, cause they were both suffering. Um, so I decided to 
cut a solo record and see where it went. And if it didn't, you know, go somewhere that, that made some sense career wise, then I was just going to give it up and focus on the food side. Gotcha. So that's what I did. Yeah. And you have such an incredible background of working under great people here in Atlanta, people who have really, I mean, just created the map of what it means to be a diner and eater here in Atlanta. Talk to me a little bit about your restaurant background. Sure. Um, well, first of all, one of the first restaurants I worked at here in Atlanta is Eats. Yes. I walked Pons. by it yesterday. Yeah. And it's still going strong. I mean, it's been there for since 1992, I believe. It's awesome. Or 93, I think they opened in 93. Um, so I was one of the first people on the staff there and it was an interesting mix of people. Everybody had a college education. It was during that kind of slacker phase, um, <laughs> like the film slackers, remember that? <laughs> it was kind of during that whole time period where everyone was really disenchanted with moving into the, um, you know, the world of of being at a in a cubicle and we all wanted to do something different you know so we were all just we were all young just trying to figure out how can we escape from this for a minute and I ended up working there for four years off and on so it was like we would go on tour and come back and Bob Hatcher who's the owner would always have a place for us to um, to jump right back in because you know it's the restaurant business you always need people so I was really lucky to have you know, to have a place that was sort of like a home base um, and I could fill in shifts whenever. And then <clears throat> I, I started working in a couple of different other spots. Um, but what I, to me, the turning point was when I got a job with Ann Quatrano at Floataway Cafe. And at the time it was very new. Um, so it was super busy. I was very intimidated, but I had eaten there one time and I just thought this is the kind of food that I would like to learn how to make. Um, it was elevated, but simple and rustic and very fresh and seasonal. And I just, I just thought it was really incredible. It seemed very different, really stood out. And so I, I basically just begged her for a job. I kept stopping by and, you know, dropped my resume off, which really didn't amount to much. <laughs> what year um, was this? This was in 1999. So I had been, uh, you know, working at a couple of places. I worked at Eats. I worked at the Flatiron in East Atlanta. I helped open the Universal Joint in um, Oak, Oakhurst. And so Floataway was the next step. And, you know, but all those places are great places, but they're definitely very casual. And, you know, there's there's not... It's not elevated. And so I ended up getting a job with her and working the wood burning grill, which is probably one of the hardest jobs you could do oh, in, in that restaurant. Um, Cause you have to build a fire, keep it going all night long and cook over it. And, but I found that the challenge, um, you know, really exciting. And I worked there for about a year when we had our final tour coming up. Um, I had to let them know, you know, like, Hey, because we had taken some time off between the time we recorded and the time uh, Winter Birds, which was our last Sealy record, came out. And uh, we were going on tour in February, so I let them know around Christmas time, you know, hey, I, I can't stay much longer. I've got to go on tour. I really, I would love to come back if I can. And, you know, they're like, it's not like that here. You can't, <laughs> you can't just leave and come back. <laughs> right, you know? right. So, um, and I get, I understand that being a restaurant owner now. 
And so while we were out, um, it was, we didn't realize it was our last tour, but we, we kind of fizzled after that. Um, we were all starting to get a little older. I was, um, I turned 30 that year and so did our bass player Joy and, the, and Eric and Lori were both late 20s. And, you know, we were kind of like, well, what are we going to do next? Like we're, we're all, this is like the big push where you, you know, are you going to have a family? Are you going to grow a career or, or what, are, what are, what are you going to do? And so we all just kind of went different directions. And, um, that's when, when I got back from that tour and we sort of figured it out on tour, like this, this maybe is our, our last one. Wow. Um, and it, it's more complex than that, but I won't go into it. But anyway, when I got back, I, I, had, I had eaten at uh, Watershed in Decatur, the original Watershed, um, prior to us going out of town. And they, they were really new as well. And they had just converted into a full-blown restaurant where it started off as like a gift shop with, with wine, wine gifts, flowers, and they had like sandwiches. And then they, cha- they decided to make it a, a real restaurant, um, lunch and dinner and wine service and all that stuff and a bar. And so I approached them and, and I was real big fan of Scott Peacock's. I didn't know him at all, but I just had been following him. And also, um, you know, the Indigo girls, Emily was one of the owners and yeah. they, you know, they had, they had a lot going on. Like it was becoming very popular. Everybody was talking about it. And I got um, hired as their grill cook there, and I was I was their first grill cook. They had just installed a grill, so wow! And you're um, like, yeah, I got all this wood or but fire it, building experience. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm your guy. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't a wood burning grill, but um, yeah. nonetheless, I still had a little um, yeah technique that I had picked up and was able to to share. So I was happy about that. And I worked my way up to saute, and then um, became a sous chef at dinner. Uh, after that, um, Scott really, Scott Peacock really, um, noticed me and took a lot of, um, initiative to teach me. And if he had an event, he would ask me to come and help. And, and then he would sometimes have events out of town and he would ask me to come and help do the events. And so it was really exciting because I, I was watching him kind of grow to his stardom and, and he, at the time he was being you know, he'd been nominated for a James Beard Award, and he was working on a cookbook, and it was, you know, I saw the whole thing, like, unraveling before me, and, and just how, just, you know, it's very stressful and exciting, and he, how hard everybody worked to, to make his food, which was really incredibly simple, and very seasonal, and um, with, a, with a strong um, bend to historic southern roots and yeah i just think he's a fantastic cook and he's very very smart and i learned so much from him so i ended up staying there for almost nine years um and that's not really typical of the restaurant business but i just every time i thought about leaving a new challenge would come my way or i'd get promoted or um learn something new i even i mean i by the time i left there i learned how to do every single thing yeah. in the restaurant I, I mean i even staged in the front of the house oh, behind wow. the bar and on the floor and even at the host stand just to see how everything worked because i i was starting to get the idea that maybe i might want to own my own restaurant and it, the more i could learn from them the more i would have the ability to do so 
Um, so during that time, my current business partner now, Neil, Mc Neil McCarthy, was uh, working at Soto Soto. And he kind of had the same experience, but in the front of the house. He started as a busboy and then became a server assistant and then got onto the floor. And then, you know, he started learning a lot about wine and service and later became uh, an assistant manager and then the general manager of both Soto Soto and Freedy by the time he left. So we were both basically running other people's restaurants and we were like, same question, well, where do we go from here? And I was friends with his wife and she kept kind of pushing us together. Like, you guys should maybe do something together. Like, you've got all the front of the house experience. He's got all the, you know, the back of the house and, and maybe it's time for y'all to do something. And so we started talking and, um, and Carolyn was a great, like, instigator of the whole thing. She really, <laughs> she really was the catalyst for his wife to, um, to get us to, to get off of our asses and, and actually do it. And so <clears throat> we ended up meeting with a, a business consultant who kind of gave us like homework assignments on a weekly basis. And we were essentially writing a business plan with him at, under his guidance. And by the time we completed that and also many other steps like contacting an architect and uh, um, contacting a, um, a broker for a lease and you know looking around at spaces and by the time we had our business plan done and we already had several options for places that we could get a lease on and we you know started shopping for investors and Man. it just all sort of just happened in this way that um we had the guidance of of a great um business advisor and i i really don't think we could have done it without him and then we both let our perspective workplaces know that we were leaving we wanted to open something and what was um, that moment like oh it's so dreadful I can, I can only imagine <laughs> I mean I I've never I've never stepped away from something where you know you'd been in a in a place for such a, a I mean for the restaurant world that's a long period of time that right. makes you like a dinosaur in someone's restaurant totally. you know? and well we were starting to get nervous because we were looking at spaces on our days off we were coordinating our days off and and basically every time we had time off we were working to build this idea of, of what would soon become Miller Union. And, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to tell your employer too soon because then, you know, then you're, then you're like a lame duck, right? But if you, if you wait too late, you don't give them enough notice and you want to be respectful. And so because I'd been there so long, I decided to give them f three to four months notice because oh, wow. I felt like, I had created so many systems for them that whoever trained underneath me would have a lot to learn. Yeah. And, and Scott um, was incredible, but he didn't really work in the restaurant during dinner service. So he had, um, it's, it's a very long story, but he took care of Edna Lewis, who was a famous African-American Southern chef who mm -hmm. ended up under his care in her elder years. Yeah, it was a, one of the one of the most amazing things to read uh, just yeah. about his history. I mean, here in Atlanta, and um, I actually had uh, Delia Champion on the show months ago, and uh, we talked about just Atlanta in the 90s, and she talked so highly of Watershed, and she's very closely connected with the Indigo Girls. Totally. And that was one thing that she really, she she taught me more than I actually knew on that part of Scott's story. Right, right, it's right. It's really interesting. Yeah, so, so a lot of our systems at dinner, you know, like the way in which we 
um, had our ticket system or how, or any just organizational stuff. I had a lot to download on whoever was coming behind me. So uh, point being, I, I was afraid that the owners may already have known because we were going around town looking at spaces. We kept, you know, it's hard to go around in Atlanta and not bump into somebody that you know. I've been here now for 30 years. At the time, it was like 20 years. And so I was like, it's, we've got to tell them soon because if we don't, like they're going to find out from somebody else and I'd rather them hear it from me. Yeah. And so I just had a meeting with one of the owners about something unrelated and, and I just dropped the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I really actually thought that, that she knew um, because of a couple of things that were said, but I just took them out of context because I was being paranoid. Right. And so um, I, I thought it was, I thought she was just going to be like, yeah, I already knew. And she was like, what, what oh, are you talking man. about? And so it was, it was very stressful. And, and I just said, listen, I, you know, I'll be here. I think it was March. And I was like, I'm going to stay through June and you know, I can help you interview people if you want me to like, whatever you need, like you guys have been so good to me and I want to repay you however I can. Like this has been my home for nine years. And wow. I was very, um, I've always really respected them and I have a lot of appreciation for everything that they taught me. I wouldn't be able to run a restaurant without that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a, that, that's such an amazing thing, you know, to, to have that experience and you leave something. I, I'm a, I'm a large proponent of leaving something better than you found it, you know, and yeah. you don't always have the opportunity to do that. You know, circumstantially it could just not work and they're like, no, we need you to get out of here soon. Or they're right. left floundering of like, I can't believe you're leaving us. Like, how could you do this yeah. to us? And so, but like wedging yourself into kind of those two two situations and making it really work for your benefit and theirs. Like that's, yeah, that, that's a, not the common tale, but yeah, right. that's amazing. But, yeah. um, but yeah, you know, and, um, man, I guess this, this gets you into, so 2008, 2009 ish or sometime right around there. So you and Neil are scouting spaces. And so, and then you guys actually land on the space of where Miller union is right now. Like what was it that spoke to you guys about that space specifically? Well, you know, a lot of our um, decision about that space was really from the broker. I mean, the, 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 the commercial real estate folks have their finger on the pulse. They always know what area is about to blow up because they're out there, you know, looking at everything and they know what, they know what the rents are like or the leases are like and they know all the landlords and they can see it kind of happening and so uh, West Side Urban Provisions had only been open for a little while um, and uh, you know 14th Street Taqueria and Bacchanalia had both been there for, for a good while um, probably nine, nine years at that time but below that you know going towards 10th Street there was a lot less happening but there were, there were all these empty buildings and it was truly kind of the last frontier in, in Atlanta at that time. Um, we looked at the space and, and it was actually, hadn't even been uh, developed yet. It was, a, it was just a, a, a warehouse, um, but they were about to start construction on it. So they were working on the building um, before we even, like, I think we signed the lease before we even really saw what the space was gonna look like. Oh, wow. We saw drawings and 
Um, we were the first tenants in there for two years before anybody else moved in. So it was really, it really felt like the edge of the world in some ways. Yeah. Because um, it's where 10th Street dead ends on Brady Avenue. Brady's just a two block long street that runs between Howell Mill and Marietta. <clears throat> and it's kind of a curved street. And honestly, I didn't even know it existed. Like, uh, and oh, I man. went to Georgia Tech. It's right down the street. Right. It just... It's just a kind of quiet little street. Not anymore, but it was at the time. <laughs> um, the only other thing that was on there is Compound, which is a hip hop club, and they've been there for a while. Um, their hours are so late, it's almost like they don't really affect us too much. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a different story, but. Um, <laughs> Feel the bass coming through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get, they, get, they get started up late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's where you're going after It'd be service. nice if they cleaned up their trash on Sunday mornings. I'm going to say that right now on the podcast because <laughs> we would like for them to keep the neighborhood cleaner. So I hope you're listening, guys, from comp, uh, Compound. <laughs> Love uh, you guys, but yeah, <laughs> let's keep the place let's clean. Let's be good neighbors. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it just felt... I was very nervous about that location because I live in Inman Park and I was like, I never come over here. Why, I mean, who's going to come over here? Like, in my mind, it just seemed like not the best idea. But I was convinced by my business partners and by our broker at, that it was really a good location because you have access to direct to Midtown on 10th Street. You have access direct to downtown from Marietta Street, uh, direct to Buckhead from Northside and Howell Mill, and the interstate is right at 10th street. And so really everybody can access you pretty easily, uh, without a lot of turns. And, you know, we had a good size parking, uh, situation with, you know, ballet comes with it. And so all those things kind of, okay, this is good. And the lease at the time was, was a great price. Uh, now I think the West side is probably double what we pay. Oh, and, man. you know, we got in at a really great time because, it was a huge economic downturn, the the Great Recession, as they call it now. And so it was a tricky time. I mean, I think we might have been one of the only restaurants that opened that year. Yeah. Um, so it was, we, were, we were very worried about the economy and people actually spending money because going out to dinner is a luxury. You know, if you're if you're broke, you're going to eat at home or eat something cheap. And and so and we knew our price point was. You know, we didn't want to be an expensive restaurant, but when you're serving uh, locally sourced organic produce and humanely raised meats and you make everything from scratch, it's going to cost something. I mean, that's that's the cost of doing business. And so our our menu prices truly reflect reflect the real price of what we pay. And, you know, we we market up just as as low as we possibly can. And so. I, you know, I was just nervous about who's going to come and at this time in this recession and, and spend money here. And as soon as we opened the doors, we were slammed. And, and that's amazing. And, you know, the how you guys approached the concept and especially, you know, your, your approach to seasonal cooking. I mean, uh, the, the the recipes that I know in my head from from your book, from Root to Leaf and, and dining in the restaurant and just hearing that level of transparency, you know, and really just the, the candor with, you know, like, I, I don't want you to feel like this is so unapproachable. It's, it's produce that was, you know, developed and rested from the ground from human hands, like someone who's, 
you know, deft ability to, to actually farm, you know, like that's, you're, you're celebrating like that, that style of, of not only just agriculture, but also what it means to the dining world. And I mean, but that's, that's, that's such a huge, that's such a huge part of, of your, of your background, you know, and just how, how you really brought that to Miller Union, um, especially back in like 2008, 2009, you know, I, I can only imagine that that being on the forefront of what is today, you know, of how people are approaching food. Well, that's why I was following Ann Quatrano and Scott Peacock, because they were both some of the first chefs in town that I'm aware of that were using local farmers and they, they were really into it. And that, you know, that's how I developed some, some of the relationships with some of these farms that honestly have, I've been working with for, you know, from their restaurants to now, like, 20 years almost 18 years Man. and um these guys work so hard you know and uh, and we're in such a fertile place i mean it's raining right now um but we we get a lot of rain and sunshine and it's very green and a lot of things grow here and so we're really lucky like and when you think about too back in that time period like in the late 90s um, there was one farmer's market and it was at Morningside. Um, yeah. and it's still there. Uh, it's, it, I think it's Atlanta's only all organic market. I don't know if it still is the only one, but, um, that's in the, uh, across from Alon's on, on, uh, yeah. high, on, uh, Highland Avenue and look at how many farmer's markets we have now. Yeah. Just Incredible. in town alone, there's freedom market. There's still Morningside, we have Peachtree Road, uh, Grant Park, yeah. East Atlanta, yeah. Decatur. Um, I'm, I think I'm forgetting some, but yeah, there's it's, there's, there's too many to name. I mean, now there, I yeah. think there's one actually that's kind of over in like college park or Adair park because of the Beltline. Yeah. And, and then, you know, all the suburban towns have their markets too, like Marietta and Norcross, oh, and, yeah. you know, big time. So Roswell, I mean, they all have, so it's amazing to see, the consumer de demand and how it shifted and everyone wants local fresh produce now. And I think it's wonderful to see the support from the community for local agriculture, because we're in a place where there's room to grow, like no pun intended. And, um, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of young new farmers that are coming to us and we're really excited to support them because that's the future of food. And so just to see that's, it's, it's, nice to know that there's still some young people that want to work <laughs> yeah and that want to farm and um because it's very hard work and you have to be dedicated to the craft in the same way if you want to be a cook you know there's a unfortunately there's a lot of um glamorization and kind of sort of there's just a lot of weird sort of fetish around yeah. you know chefs and and they they think it's like this glamorous thing and you show up and you sl you know sling some pans and some fire comes up and then you, everybody claps and you know <laughs> you're making all this money but it's it's really hard work and you really have to care and you have to want to do it and so many people don't realize how much time and effort it takes and you're gonna make mistakes and you're gonna screw up and you learn from them hopefully and if you don't maybe you shouldn't be doing it you know so yeah there's just a lot of um, hard work on the agriculture side, and I think there's a lot of hard work on the cooking side. And I think there's this mutual admiration society between chefs and farmers that we really have a bond. Yeah. That we, you know, they appreciate how what we do with their stuff, 
and we couldn't do what we do without them. Yeah. It's, uh, someone described it to me. It's, it's amazing watching someone who's essentially creating art. And then there's another artist that's continually turning it into art. And there, there's not many processes that really do that, you know, of like I, I worked so painstakingly to, to grow cabbage and you're turning it into this dish that is still the same. Like it's still the same thing that I created, but you're putting it on a different level, a different level of approachability and flavor. And you're, and you're really turning it into the, the best possible product that it can be. It's, it's a really incredible partnership that you guys have like just with the farm community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to spend some time talking a little bit uh, just about, you know, your just vegetables and, and especially, you know, the um, you're bringing like this, my, my favorite story, just like in hearing about Miller Union and finally getting my first experience at your restaurant. But your seasonal vegetable plate is uh, it's the perfect celebration of just that seasonal vegetables. And it's. Uh, I, I don't want to even talk about it anymore that, that just in hearing your description, but like, just, just talk to me about like, you know, how, how that is on the menu and how you actually create this dish. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I mean, so vegetables are important to us at Miller Union. Um, obviously we we spend a lot of time thinking about them and, and we try to really pay attention to the seasons and be seasonally correct at all times. In fact, when you walk in the door, um, when you look down our hallway, there's a chalkboard that once used to have farm names on them, but we work with so many farms now that we couldn't list them all. Oh, man. So we decided to change it to, um, so we didn't want to leave anybody out. We decided to change it to what's in season. And um, that's really my philosophy about cooking is you should just cook with what's available in season at the time and figure out how to use all those things. Um, I think vegetables have they're having their moment right now. And um, there's even a vegetable category for cookbooks with the James Beard Foundation that was not there five years ago. So it's awesome. Um, or maybe was maybe started five years ago, but it's in the past five years. And it's just, um, you know, the way I think about it is this is our palette. And like, if we're painting this, this, these are the colors that we have to work with, right. And so a lot of the vegetables are sometimes incorporated into an entree and then we'll take, we'll isolate that vegetable and serve it as a side as well. And then other, other vegetable sides um, will be featured just because they're great and they don't have to be incorporated into a dish. Um, but the, our seasonal vegetable plate are always gonna be our five sides at dinner um, at the bottom of the menu. And they rotate, you know, based on what's what's available at the time. And, you know, it, it, you can take a snapshot every three months and it'd be completely different. Um, so fun. So like currently we have like we just put fried okra on and we have um, some grilled squash with cucumber and peach and Vidalia. Um, we have it's kind of like the end of the green season. So we're still holding on to those and we're serving like kale and shards sauteed together with the stems. Um, we have some beautiful roasted beets that have a little acidity to them. And um, sometimes we'll do a grain like farro or uh, we're doing um, some shishito peppers with oh, grilled green beans and new potatoes. So, I mean, it just keeps changing. Yeah. Um, but we're like, we're at the, 
the cusp of tomato season. So those are coming on soon, which everybody gets excited about. And, you know, when we do tomatoes in the summertime um, at Miller Union, it's something that comes off of the expo side, which is the, where I am. So I'm, I'm selling all the food to the dining. I'm checking all the plates and giving it to the servers to take to the right, diners. Right, right. Um, but I like to oversee the tomatoes. And so I'll have them on my station and I'll, I'll cut them season them and just do a little olive oil or basil or something. I don't really like to do too much because when they're really good, they don't need much. Yeah. Just a little salt, really. And, and that's so much of every dish that I've ever had from Miller Union. It just seems that there's such a careful approach to make it be as it is. And with with such, such little, you know, just f- finicky little things of like adding an extra ingredient or another, you know, layer of, you know, intensity and, you know, acidity. It's just, a, it, it is what it is. And that it's just not the, it's not the common practice, but I think that's what makes it so beautiful. Well, I think that maybe comes from my architecture background because when you're taught about materials for building, um, you really have to use them in the way in which they show their best sides. So, you know, bricks are only going to be, you know, held together with mortar and they can only go a certain way, like they're building blocks, right? Um, steel is, has, offers a different approach or timber offers a different approach. Concrete, you know, yeah. is completely different. And so all these materials have these like innate properties that, um, that really allow for different expressions, but they are finite within each material. And I feel the same way about ingredients that um, there are, they have certain properties that really show well. And if you highlight those, um, then you can really show off these ingredients in their best fashion. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of high manipulation. And I think um, a lot of sh- young chefs and a lot of chefs that are into like, um, kind of modern food and, and um, just there's there's so much manipulation happening that sometimes they turn a certain thing upside down and you don't even know what you're eating anymore. And it, I have to say it kind of bothers me because I feel like it's sort of just, okay, we're going to flex our technique arm here, but what are you really showing me? Like you turned cabbage into a crispy noodle, but it doesn't taste like cabbage anymore. Or, you know what I mean? Like what? Yeah. So how am I supposed to know this is cabbage if I, if you never told me? Yeah. And that, I I think I'm just kind of old school in that way. Like I'm definitely more of the, um, Alice Waters, Scott Peacock, you know, Edna Lewis school than, you know, some of these modernists that I, I just don't, I don't feel like, I want to create a magic show. Yeah. I just want to make a nice painting. Yeah. And you know, I, I read an interview one time that, you know, as, as a, you know, someone as, as a young cook, you know, you're creating this amazing dish and it's incredible and it totally fits within the menu. But if you're the only person that can create this dish on the team, like what does that actually teach everybody else? You know, but creating a, a seasonal vegetable plate or something that truly gives the, the, the stage for that item and that's that's such a, a replicable process because you're treating the vegetable how it needs to be treated, and that's such a great sustainable way to teach people. This is th- this is one way, but this is also like from a purist standpoint, this is a very this is a very true way to to treat this item, and right. you know, especially just from an education standpoint, that's huge. 
Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised, though, because a lot of young cooks really don't, they don't want to make the kind of food I'm making. They want to, you know, do something exciting. Where Shame it, on them. You know, they want to use their tweezers. And right. it's like, <laughs> and, you know, and that's fine. I totally get it. But I, I feel like the food that I'm making is timeless. It would, it, it's good, you know, 20 years ago. It would be good in 20 years. It won't feel dated because it's just real food, you know. And I think people like to eat real food. They don't want to be tricked. They don't want to be, I mean, some people want to be wild and, and, and have their mind blown or, you know, they love the, a clever twist. And I just think, it's, I, I don't think that way about food. Yeah. We have to eat every day. Yeah. And I want to create a special experience where, you know, everything was well considered, but we're not trying to like, you know, make something disappear. Yeah. <laughs> do you have tweezers in your apron? I actually do own a pair of tweezers and they're a great tool for certain things, but I don't wear them on me and I don't use it. I don't use them every day. Yeah. It seems like it's just the, uh, it's, it's almost like a, a pair of like cufflinks. It's just like, you just want to have them in there and you know, it's almost like the, it's, or some it's people a flashy use, thing. Some people use them for everything right. and it becomes like <laughs> an extension of their fingers. Right. Like, why don't you just use your fingers? Yeah. Like, just get in there, man. Use I your paws. I know. <laughs> you got to actually know what it feels like. You can't feel the world through a pair of tweezers. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I want to know a little bit more about, you know, just, you know, th there's something that, that I think is really important and it might be a little lost on people, especially like maybe, you know, just a few of the generations, but talking specifically about slow food and your involvement in slow food here in Atlanta and just the importance of this, you know, this movement, you know, it's, it's not just an organization, but really being a movement. And, you know, so tell me a little bit about, you know, just, you know, your, your involvement there. Sure. Um, slow food started in Italy and, uh, the nineties and it was a, it was a initial reaction to, um, a proposal to build a McDonald's in, and an, an Italian city and um, they didn't want it to come. And so these people that were protesting it uh, started Slow Food. And it's basically the idea of appreciating food, where it comes from, understanding where it comes from. Food is from farms. And, um, and also there's such a rich history of food in Italy um, that they, you know, they were afraid that some of the traditions and the history would disappear if if they let the gates open um i'm sure there's mcdonald's everywhere in italy now but <laughs> but um this organization was was born out of out of that idea of just kind of slowing down and, and appreciating food um, they do a lot of really great work around um and, and by the way so slow food it started in italy but it's an international organization and right. it's a nonprofit. Uh, there's Slow Food USA, which is based out of Brooklyn, and then there's Slow Food chapters all over our country and all over the world. Um, they have a, a biennial gathering in um, Torino, Italy, and it's a global gathering of food. Um, there are people from all over the world that are there to, to basically experience um, many different things, including tasting food from around the world. Um, and they're usually very um, specific products that have some kind of history and cultural identity. Uh, they also, Slow Food developed the Arc of Taste, which is um, a program 
designed to stop the extinction of a species of fruit or vegetable or an oyster or anything that was cl close to disappearing from our earth. Right. And Ark, A-R-K, the Ark of Taste, like Noah's Ark. Um, all these products that they identify of being potentially, um, you know, disappearing, it's just a program to raise awareness and to also get some seeds saved and get them to growers so that they can continue to propagate and grow these fruits or vegetables or whatever they may be. Um, there are several items from Georgia that are on there um, and they go through the seasons. There's one, there's like a particular peach that almost disappeared called the Bell of Georgia peach. Yeah. Um, the pawpaws on there. Um, just things that, you know, there, there's such biodiversity in our world, but we went through this period where everything became monocropped and, you know, it's like you have the Idaho potato and you have the red delicious apple and it's like, there are thousands of varieties of apples and thousands of varieties of potatoes, but those are the two you would most commonly see 20 years ago. Now there's much more awareness about food. And so that really helps and people want to have a variety. And so that's part of what we try to do too, is, you know, when we're working with these farmers, um, we have this ability to showcase certain ingredients that we can talk to customers about and, tell them where we bought it. You know, this farmer actually sells these at Freedom Market on Saturdays and you can go get it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm the vice president of Slow Food Atlanta. I've been on the board for six or seven or eight years. I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's all volunteer. Everybody that is serves on the board is, you know, they just put their heart and soul into it. And, and it's, you know, we meet um, every other month and we do several events. Like we have one coming up, the, um, the uh, Ice Cream Social yeah. at Peachtree Road Farmer's Market. That's in August. And uh, I think it's August 11th or 13th, something like that. It's a Saturday and tickets yeah. are on sale now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we do, we do a lot of other things. We, we, um, we're sending a lot of delegates to Terra Madre this year. So this, this year is a Terra Madre year. And I think every we, other year, right? every other year. Yeah. So I think we have over 25 delegates from Georgia, which is the most of any state in our country. That's so incredible. we're really excited and proud that we have such a great and active community. A lot of the delegates are farmers and it's important for them to go. Um, I went four years ago and it was life changing. It was really, really an amazing experience. And you can go to lectures and you can go to um, demonstrations. You can go to luncheons with visiting chefs. Um, they had an Enoteca where you can taste wines from all over. Um, there's, there are booths for each country and each, yeah. And you can you can go talk to them and read about what they're doing. Yeah. And it it sounds like the most incredible experience. It's, it's really amazing, and and a lot of people don't even know what slow food is. So we're always trying to you know raise awareness about the organization. Um, and I'm actually about to go to Denver in a couple of weeks to um, Slow Food Nations, which is a, it's a North American gathering, um, mostly United States chapters, but I think we have some from Mexico and Canada, if they'll let them in. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> He's got jokes, <laughs> but seriously. Uh, so yeah, it's great. I'm gonna do a food waste dinner. So I proposed this last year to 
the, organi the organizers of Slow Food Nations. It, last year was the inaugural um, year, and they want it to be an annual event in Denver. And I said, you know, if we want to really be true to slow food, let's think about all the waste that's going to be generated by anybody that's doing a demo or serving a meal for a crowd. There will be waste. And so can we just all focus on that for the weekend and maybe we turn the waste into a final meal on the last night oh, of man. the event? And so we did it, and it was really, really fun and very successful. We did a family-style dinner. There were about 10 chefs. Um, Big Green Egg was a sponsor, and they gave us each a station with a Big Green Egg so we could cook if we wanted to on the fly. And awesome. Um, there were some really neat things that happened, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but it was just an incredible experience. And, and the director of Slow Food USA came up to me after the event, and he said, Stephen, this has been the most rewarding thing that we've done it's the most in line with our values and principles and we want to do it again so that's i'm going back to do that's to, awesome to do that that's so and, cool. and it, we have more chefs now that are involved and uh um there's a chef in italy named massimo batura yeah. who um who is going to be attending this year and oh, he's coming man. to the dinner which is a really big deal for us because it's he's huge. the he's a big champion of fighting food waste and has done a lot to um, combat it in yeah. Italy, and also now he's doing some things here in the U.S. And so, we're really excited to to um, show him what we're doing with these ideas, and and I think it'll bring a new sense of um, inspiration to everybody that's involved. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, it, I just think that's that's such a great part of the work that you're doing here in Atlanta, and you know. I, I do think that there's a, an educational component to slow food to, to perpetuate it into the, the generations upcoming. And especially as people are getting into food, that it's it's less of the stage and it's more about the sustainability. You know, yeah. and, it's, and, um, and not, if I'm not already doing enough, I'm also the local leader of Chefs Collaborative Atlanta. Uh -huh. So it's also <laughs> a national nonprofit um, and they have a strong uh, arm of sustainability. So that's their that's their whole deal. And so everything is, you know, sustainable seafood and um, humanely raised meats and also eating less meat, smaller portions of meat, um, focusing on food waste um, and also creating a network of chefs. And so we have a local um, chapter, basically, and there are several um, locals all over the the country and we all we all know each other at this point and we have an annual uh, chef summit where we do um, educational programming and it's a chance for us to broaden our horizons about some of the latest hot topics um, and I also have worked with the James Beard Foundation this past year as an as part of an advisory committee to introduce a food waste curriculum to culinary schools Oh, cool. So we were able to, um, it was a group of about 20 people and some chefs and some educators and some food waste experts where we worked with the James Beard Foundation and their impact program. And we um, helped shape this curriculum with our input. And even uh, in the final stages of it, they um, had a lot of us come up to New York City and film um demonstrations of making a dish that incorporates food waste so we can show the gastronomic side too and it was really exciting um 
program and it's rolling out this fall in culinary schools across America. That's so cool. Not every culinary school, but many of many select culinary schools. It's yeah. sort of in the beta version, but um, it's a really wonderfully designed program that is has all these different learning modules that have not just information on a page, but also videos and lectures that are um, taped so that you, it's a variety of speakers and yeah. you, get, you get kind of a big picture. It's huge. You know, and I mean, again, like I, I just think it's it's such a huge portion of being a diner, you know, really more on the eater side, the consumer side of you know, the, the educational aspect of where your food comes from. And everyone that I've spoken with, especially people I've had on the show, is like, you know, tell me a little bit about what our side should be. Like, what are the things that we can do to really help perpetuate the work of, of slow food, of, of, you know, just sustainability? And it's just know where your food comes from. You know, but also I think the work of slow food is understanding, you know, that the, it's also at risk of losing like a lost art, like the, the actual process of creating this yeah. item or growing this, you know, this, this well, varietal. And everything just keeps getting faster and faster. Right. People don't make time to eat a meal, you know, and I, we're all guilty of it. I mean, you know, it's like you just grab something and go cause you're busy. We're all busy, busy, busy. And it's yeah. like to stop and appreciate food for a minute and think about where it comes from and, and also be aware of where it comes from. A lot of Americans eat with blinders on. They don't want to think about a factory farm chicken and they'll happily, you know, eat chicken from wherever and not even give it a thought. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm a, I am very passionate about supporting farmers that raise uh, chicken on pasture where they have access to sunlight and they can roam around and they can eat the things they would naturally eat. I mean, they get feed from the farmer as well, but they can eat insects and they go yeah. behind, you know, if they, it, like white oak pasture is a great example where they, their, their birds are um, have access, you know, to the the grazing area where the cows had gone through, and that and they break up the cow poop and it helps fertilize the ground yeah. and and they it's a natural system. Yeah, that it's it's, true ecology. It's exactly. Amazing. But you know that's not the way chicken is raised in our country. Majority right. is in a really devastatingly disgusting situation. Yeah. And a lot of that's here in Georgia too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're the, we're, we're, the, we're the king of, yeah. of poultry production. Exactly. Yeah. So, man, but you know, like I just, I think that that work is, is just, um, you know, especially, you know, what we can do on our side and, you know, and you're just shifting gears a little bit back to Miller union specifically. And I mean, it's, it's, 10 years since you guys have been a restaurant, you know, or since well, you guys actually started nine, we're, we're nine. We're yeah. going to be nine in uh, November. Yeah. And so, I, I would love to talk a little bit about some of the things we do behind the scenes at the restaurant. Yeah. And you know, like I, I, nine years is, um, is such a, it depends on who you talk to, but for me, like that's such a long period of time to be doing the food that you guys are doing. And the, especially just the restaurant that you and Neil have created, you know, nine years of, of being a business, like there's so much to unpack here, but it's funny too. Cause you know, in some ways it feels like an eternity in other ways, it feels like the blink of an eye. I mean, it has gone by quickly, but yet, you know, I've spent, I can't even tell you how many hours in that building. Um, but I do want to touch on sustainability within the restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we opened with a composting program. Um, and basically, we are able to compost any food scraps that we can't serve. Um, that includes post-consumer dining scraps. If they don't want to, if the consumer doesn't want to take food home, we don't throw it in the landfill. We put it in our compost. Wow. So we can do... Um, meat and bones and vegetables and everything paper 
we only use, um, we've always only used the um, straws and stirs that are compostable. Yeah. So I know that's a hot topic right now, the plastic straws. Nobody yeah. should be using them because they're yeah. killing the turtles yeah. and everything else. And you But know. what the world can do with potato starch is amazing. Yes, you know? exactly. Like you can eat with it. Exactly. <laughs> um, we have always had a recycling program, including um, glass bottles, where the city has stopped taking glass. We found a different hauler that would, and we pay extra for it. We pay extra for our compost and our recycling because we care about the environment and we don't want to be dumping food into landfills and and recyclables into landfills. You know, we feel like restaurants are a big impact on the environment. And so what whatever we can do to negate our footprint, we want to try. Um, <clears throat> we also are we also have our um, used fryer oil turned into biodiesel. Wow. And um, we don't do it ourselves. We have someone that picks it up. <laughs> That'd be something else. We, <laughs> we use uh, non-GMO uh, Expeller Press canola oil for our fryers. Uh, other than that, we only cook with extra virgin olive oil. Like, we have a lot of high standards and principles that we have upheld since the very beginning. Um, and we feel it's important to, to keep those standards. And we do local whenever we can. You know, obviously we can't do that all the time we're a very busy restaurant and we have to supplement but we use turnip truck who is um, michael shank's uh, uh farm delivery service as our primary uh produce company so we'll, if they can get it locally originally they'll do that first and if they can't they'll get it from the state farmers market wow um which is sometimes from an, an, a different part of the region, but we're all, we definitely only serve domestic food. We don't like to serve anything from another country just because it went too far. And um, we don't serve any artificial sweeteners. Uh, we don't use any chemicals in our food. Everything is just as pure as it can be. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, the first example that popped into my head is I, I remember the uh, beet red velvet cake that was on the on, on the pastry menu, on the dessert menu. And it's, you know, it didn't really click for the people that were with us. But it was fun explaining to them. It's like, think about when you've peeled a beet and you've picked it up with your bare hand. Your hand your hand is red for the next three days. Yeah. You know, it's like, but amazing dye. So if you want red velvet cake, it doesn't have to be made with some artificial, you know, yeah. food coloring. And the red food coloring is probably the worst thing for Oh, yeah, for you. exactly. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. it's immediately like carcinogenic or something yeah. terrible. But and that, that recipe is in Roots Leaf. Pamela Moxley, are my pastry chef, and I um, developed that together. I, I came to her... When I, because Roots Leaf is a seasonal vegetable book, basically. It's an omnivore's vegetable book, but it's all about the seasons. Yeah. And I asked her, I'm thinking about this idea of a cake made with beets, like a, in the style of red velvet, and do a goat cheese frosting because beets and goat cheese are a classic pairing. Yes. And, you know, you've seen it so many times. And, can't, you know, what do you think? And she was, she took it and ran with it. And it is one of my favorite recipes. It's so good. Oh, and there's like, she's doing the little cupcakes of it right now. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah and I, I remember it was, I remember it was plated. I mean, this was probably like a few years ago, but I mean, it was just, it, it was just, there was so much magic to unpack there of like knowing what's on your plate and then, you know, goat cheese on a dessert. That's not just part of a plate paired with like, you know, something with bubbles. Like it right. was, it, it, 
there was just so much like head turning and like oh my gosh and like it's just such a fun dish yeah it's a good recipe and we actually had it um published in the new york times yeah after, after the book came yeah, out yeah it's man there's just so much like there's just like achievement and fun there but um i love that you mentioned roots leaf like you're nailing that like that question that i actually had for you so <laughs> it's it's been a little over three years since the book came out right 2015 yeah. yeah and uh I, I picked up a copy immediately and um you know, seasonal cooking is, I mean, again, maybe not top of mind for everybody, but you know, that was the, like your book and also just, you know, eating in your restaurant. And that was, that was one of the first places that I saw a really fun use for sorghum, like your sorghum glazed carrots, or especially seeing something like you don't throw away the fennel frond, you know, right. don't, don't throw them away. Like the stem might just look like garbage, but you know, here's a great way to use that. And if anything, they, they probably taste better. You know, I mean, well, they, flavor. there's tons yeah. of flavor in there, but yeah. you know, I guess like if, if you never picked up, you know, your book, I mean, like luckily, I mean, I know it kind of cover to cover, but you know, the, that, that's an amazing tool to have in your kitchen. If you really want to approach like seasonal cooking. Like Absolutely. Recipes. And I, I think, you know, my goal with Roots Leaf was I want this to be kind of like the Bible for the home cook. If they really want to engage in cooking with the seasons and maybe they are shopping at the market farmer's market and they don't know what to do with kohlrabi or carrot tops. And, you know, and obviously like the, the common ones are there, the tomatoes, the peaches, you know, yeah. the things that everybody love, but then some other, you know, some other ways to think about some of the fruits and vegetables in our world that maybe people just look at and don't know what to do with. So they pass it by. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest seasons to cook in seasonally is winter, but it's also one of my favorites because I love just the expression of all these different root vegetables and hearty greens and things like that, that there's, there's a lot you can do and you can really get so much flavor out of them, but people don't, don't, they're not as experienced with the rutabaga or, right. you know, <laughs> the parsnip or whatever. Yeah. So I know you've got like parsnip muffins, I think there's yeah. a recipe in there. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah. But I mean, like that's, that's just a fun thing. Like I, I, I think you, you approach the, the level of don't be scared of this and like, let me show you why this matches up seasonally, but also how to handle this vegetable. So it's, it's got such a great marriage of like how you need to approach these vegetables. As yeah. Well. And the, and also I would say in general, the recipes are really simple. I mean, most, most of them, oh, I mean, the yeah. difficulty level is not too high. Yeah. It's definitely doable. So, um, I, you know, I encourage people if they're listening and they haven't picked up the book to check it out because yeah. it, it I've had people write me letters from, you know, another place and just say, this book changed the way I cook. Yeah. And it, that's the most gratifying, satisfying thing you can get from a reader is knowing that you had that kind of impact on them. Yeah. No, it's, it's an amazing tool. And like, I've, I've loved cooking from it and I, I, I always hope to do it more, but, um, but you know, one of the, one of the other things I want to touch on here as, as we, as we wrap up, I, um, there's something really great about, you know, last year and especially just being named, you know, one of the country's best chefs from James Beard. I mean, what, what an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank um, you. but you know, that's especially and you being nominated, I mean, since 2013 or, or even before that, I mean, just for, for your work at Miller Union, how has that changed the, the atmosphere of the restaurant? And do you, do you see that changing anything even further? Well, um, the physical atmosphere has changed because we have so many um, recognitions from the James Beard Foundation that we had to put a separate 
wall up just for them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had to put it, we had to dedicate a wall just for all the plaques. So we're very proud of that. It's right when you walk in. Uh, I was nominated five times in a row and won the fifth year. It was always very stressful, um, but exciting. And, you know, there's nothing really like going to the James Beard Awards. It is our Academy Awards, you know, and you see everybody that you know there and, and you know, you meet, make new friends and um, it's, an, it's an exciting experience. And, you know, they announce the, the winners live and you go up on stage and have to make a speech. I've never been more overwhelmed um, <laughs> and emotional, you know, it's yeah. an incredibly emotional moment. Um, well, especially Anne Quattrano handing you the award. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I mean, like, God, that was amazing. Like you, you obviously are going to weep, you know, at yeah. some point. Like, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. such an emotional experience. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But um, she, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty amazing uh, moment to have her put that medal around my neck. Yeah. And just, um, you know, immediately after the restaurant was incredibly busy, we had our busiest year to date uh, from June last year to now so wow we're we're kind of like still you know trying to catch our breath it's been a year now um and i don't have the title anymore but i always have that award so yeah <laughs> but man congratulations though i mean like yeah. it was just like i i was chatting with um I, I had someone on the show, uh, Lashita Perry. She's a pastry chef at the Four Seasons, and she was on a, a, a Food Network show. And it was just like, you're always like, at least in some way, like I'm always so excited to see someone from the restaurant community here in Atlanta, like doing something where they're, you know, everybody's like seeing some great recognition, you know? And like, so watching you walk up on stage, I was just like, oh, I'm like fist pumping. And it's, like, <laughs> it's just yeah. so cool because, you know, like one of the, like the tagline that I kind of have on the Atlanta Foodcast is like, you know, there's so many people that are making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. And, you know, we there, there's so much to tout. There's so much, you know, recognition, accolade, whatever. But, you know, something like Miller Union and the work that you're doing like that, that to me unlocks the potential of what makes eating food so special, not just good. I mean, you can eat good food all over the place, but it makes it something so special. So, I mean, I think that's that's just like the icing on the proverbial cake is like, yeah the James Beard award, like, absolutely. You know, like that's the, there's, there's no question. Like that's, that's a, I mean, tour de force. So, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that's it, awesome. It was, it, so, was, it was fun to see. Yeah. I mean, that's right now, one of the major highlights of my career for sure. And it's, it was an incredible moment and, you know, just to, and also an incredible amount of pressure afterwards too. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, now I'm the best chef in the Southeast right now. And, you know, people are flocking in here and we have to make sure we don't disappoint. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's a lot of pressure too. And, yeah. um, things are starting to kind of normalize and it's, it's also a, a big relief in that way as well. You know, like it's, it was just a crazy year. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, I traveled a lot too and, and, and was in higher demand than usual. So yeah. it was, a, it was an exhausting year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine, but, but I'm very grateful. Yeah. But man, just, I mean, again, just so, so fun to watch that. I mean, just to, like to see that, especially, I don't know, there's, there's something for me. It's like, I've dined in that restaurant and like, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's just something really fun to watch. So that was my first instance of like, I've actually eaten in this restaurant. And I, like, I, I feel like I know so much about his background. It was just, it was really, really cool. But yeah, um, but chef, thank you so much for being on the show. It, it's such an honor to have this conversation with you. And, 
Um, just with like the last, you know, couple minutes here, like, you know, what, what's going on at Miller Union? What's, what's happening next for you? Do you have another book that you're writing? Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'm actually going to later this summer, I'm doing a, um, culinary writing residency at a, um, place called Hambage and it is in the North Georgia mountains, um, where I'm going to take two weeks off from work and focus on a new book concept. Very cool. So, um, I'm just in the concepting phase right now, but I've been awarded a scholarship to go do this fellowship. So I'm wow. really, really excited about it. Um, Very cool. Most exciting to me is that I'm going to be in a cabin in the woods with no cell phone reception. That's it. Yeah. And I have a responsibility to come out on the other side with, with something in my hands. Yeah. You so. should just go full Walden and like just build a cabin <laughs> around you and then write your book. <laughs> what and, a, um, outside of that, I mean, you know, always at the restaurant when I'm in town and, and, um, working with my team and we're always trying to find new ways to discover flavor and freshen up. But we also want to rotate through some of our classics. And so it's a nice mix of um, old and new and high and low and um, yeah, just plugging along. I mean, getting ready for our 10th anniversary next year, which we, we hope to have a maybe a big block party for that. So yeah, we'll see. It's going to be a lot of vegetables for everybody. That's going to be fun. Yeah, or maybe yeah. we'll just have Rodney Scott come do whole hog barbecue yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> we brought in a guest chef for our 10 year anniversary. Yeah. We brought in, you know, just, just Rodney Scott. Just, yeah. Just Rodney Scott. But oh man, that's Rodney, that's, if you're listening. Yeah. I'm going to send this to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send it to him too. He's, um, he's the current best chef Southeast. So. Yeah. I know. And man, what a, I mean, just plugging even more for him. I mean, like, you know, having his spot in you know the country, so to speak. And yeah. now like just being in Charleston, like it's awesome. Saw some yeah. really cool stuff from him on like Bon Appetit. That was just really fun to watch. Definitely. So yeah, but great guy. Yeah. We'll send this to you, Rodney. So we love you, but <laughs> uh, chef Steven Satterfield such an honor to have you on the show again thank you so much thank and you. yeah we'll uh we'll see you soon i'll be at, i'll be at miller union i'd imagine holler at me yeah i will <laughs> <laughs> thanks again man see ya many thanks again go out to steven for joining me for this episode last season and there's still so many great things that keep coming from miller union and his entire team there and if you remember my story from the beginning of this episode and you've never dined at the restaurant before head to millerunion.com and make your reservation just like i did it's a great year for 10 years folks and i can't wait to see what they bring over the next 10. This podcast is recorded all over our beautiful city and edited over on the east side of town by me, your host. Hello again. Our design is headed up by JJ Getz. And if you like what you hear, you can support the show right now on Patreon for just $5 a month. I'm your host, Ben Getz, and you've been listening to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stay hungry, 